0: to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your Word to instruct us as to how we are to have a relationship with you, that it is in your Word that we're told who you are and who we are, and we're told of all the provisions that you have made for us and all of your many grace blessings. And Father, it is in your Word that we come to understand how to think. How to think as you would have us to think. How to think is you have created things, uh, thinking consistently with reality and not according to the fantasies generated by our sin natures. Father, as we study your word today, we pray that uh, we might come to a greater understanding of who we are in Christ and what you have provided for us in Christ and all that it means to be in Christ and, and the fact that because this is our identity, that it, it should change our the way we live, the way we think, And that we might uh, recognize that we are in Christ, our life is hidden with Christ uh, in you, and that because of this, we have a totally different uh, perspective, orientation, identity than we ever had before. And we pray that as we study these things this morning, that you would help us to understand them and that God, the Holy Spirit, would help us to apply the principles we learn in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and as I pointed out the last uh, couple of times, the this is the core section in this epistle. And as Paul is addressing this congregation in Colossae, a congregation made up of people who aren't very much different than you and I, especially in terms of their, their thinking and the culture of out of which they uh, they came. Uh, the Greek culture, the Greco-Roman culture at that time was not a whole lot different from the culture that we have in Western civilization today. It was a culture dominated by a variety of philosophies and a variety of religions. And the view was that they were all uh, fine and good, whatever worked for you was okay, and... Um, as long as you found the religion that was uh, right for you, that's fine. If you had one, great. If you didn't have one, great. And there was not a sense within the culture of, of sin. And in the United States, we're living in what has been called the post-Christian or post-Christian era. That is usually demarcated by the year 1963 because of a number of different things that happened in that year. 19, the early 60s saw a shift that occurred in terms of the worldview that dominated the, the majority of Americans. And by worldview, I, I mean a way of thinking about everything in the universe, Uh, whether it has to do with creation, whether it has to do with God, whether it has to do with our individual spiritual life. All of these are components within a person's worldview. It is how one views the world. And we can either view the world from God's perspective as revealed in his word, or we can view the world from a variety of different perspectives that all comprise a human viewpoint look at the world. And it's one or the other. We can look at the world God's way or we can look at the world man's way. We can interpret uh, life uh, from either God's perspective or man's perspective. But the only way we know God's perspective is to go to his word. We can't learn it any other way. It's not going to happen by osmosis. We're not going to know it intuitively There's only one way to learn it, and that is through the study of God's Word, which has been the emphasis of what the Apostle Paul has been saying in the last few verses. As we come to this section, I pointed out that this is the transition section in uh, Colossians. The first chapter, actually down through verse uh, 5, or yes, down through verse 5 is the uh, focal point of, or the end of the introduction. And then starting in uh, verse 5, or verse 6 rather, starting in verse 6, he begins to fo- develop the first, uh, the transition into the main body of this epistle where the focus is on all that we are and all that we have in Christ and living on the basis of that. And as he concludes the introduction, the focus is on a warning a warning to these readers not to be sucked into the attractive, seductive, persuasive uh, philosophies of this world that are presented in a very convincing manner. He says, I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And he goes on to say, though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, that is in terms of Uh, My thinking, I'm always thinking about you, praying for you, which he stated several times in the opening uh, introduction. I'm with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order, the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And then verse 6, as you therefore, he draws a conclusion here, therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It is... Um, said that the most significant central part of this holy epistle is uh, the, are the verses from six to fifteen, and that if that is the heart of Colossians, then the heart of that section from six to fifteen are these two verses, understanding uh, what Paul is saying here because as he states this under the inspiration of the holy spirit he sort this sort of compresses all that he wants to say in the subsequent chapters, in the rest of chapter 2 and in chapter 3 about our uh, spiritual life. But it's all grounded on these two verses, which is why I've taken some time to think through what uh, the Apostle Paul is telling us in these verses. In verse 6, he says, "...as you therefore have received..." Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him the main command is to walk in him but it's built on an analogy with how we receive Christ so the two questions he answers are are that we need to answer to understand this first of all how did we receive Christ and the second question is how do we walk in him The answer we looked at last time is that we receive Christ by believing the gospel message, believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That is the gospel message. That is the good news. Gospel means uh, means good news, and we receive Christ by accepting Him as our Savior. And there are various uh, synonyms or synonymous phrases that are used to express this core idea of faith in Christ. Now, in the Gospel of John, the primary way is by simply stating that we are to believe in Christ using the uh, Greek verb pistuo, which means to believe, to trust, and the object of that belief is in Jesus Christ. But even John uses a synonym for that in John 1.12. He says, as many as received him... To them gave he the power to be called sons of God. And he uses the verb there, lambano, receiving Christ, as a synonym, another way of saying believe in Christ. Those who have received or accepted his message that he is the Messiah and he is the one who has come to give us life. And that by believing in him, we have life in his name. So we receive Christ by faith by faith alone by believing in uh, Jesus Christ as our savior so we we begin our Christian life by faith in Christ and it continues by also having faith in Christ trusting in him and this is the uh, John uses a phrase I mean excuse me Paul uses the phrase here that we walk in him. And that I pointed out last time, and we looked at a number of verses that are used in other Pauline epistles, as well as John, the way in which the scriptures talk about the Christian life with this metaphor to walk in him, that this is uh, just a way, another way of talking about how we conduct our life, how we live our life, our manner of life, our way of life. It incorporates everything that goes into our life but it also builds off of certain aspects of the of the literal imagery of walking that it is something that is step by step. It is not something that is done all at once, that it is a moment by moment dependency upon God. The two key phrases here in the command, peripeteo is the Greek word, which is just a common word for walking and used metaphorically to describe a way of life. And it's a present imperative. And as I'm, and it's very important to understand this, as a present imperative, it's emphasizing something that is to be the standard operating procedure in a person's life. This is, this is not up for debate. This is not up for discussion. We are to always be walking in dependence upon Him. And then we have that phrase, in Him. Which is a, uh, as I pointed out last time, we have to continue to remember is a phrase that describes our position in Christ. So you have two different ideas that are operating here. The walk is relates to our experience and the in him relates to our position. And so the apostle Paul is pulling these two ideas together that our experience our day-to-day, moment-by-moment experience of the Christian life should match the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. And uh, John does something similar using the phrase uh, walking in in the light. Paul also uses that phrase walking in the light in Ephesians uh, chapter 5 that we are children of light, which has to do with our position uh, using the the metaphor of, of children, that we are w- within the family of God. We are children of light. That's who we are in terms of our uncontested, unchanging identity. We are children of light. That's who we are. And then he says, but walk as children of light. Walk in the light. So just like the f- fact that you could be a member of your family, And whatever that family is, I was born in the Dean household, and I am a member of the Dean family. Can't change that, no matter how hard I may have tried at some point or another, or how hard my parents may have wished that I was someone else. That's an unchanging reality. But there were times when I didn't behave myself, and my father would say something like, well, no member of this family acts like that. No member of the Dean family behaves in that manner. Now, does that mean that uh, I really didn't do that? No. It means that I did something that violated the standards of the family. I wasn't living or walking like a member of the family. So the member of the family idea is what represents our position in Christ, who we really are, our identity in Christ. And then the uh, idea of walking has to do with our Day to day experience that our life should match our reality, and so this begin, becomes a foundation here for understanding uh, understanding the uh, Christian life. Now, last time I didn't go into the whole idea of walking in Christ, so I want to do that a little more today to help us understand this. This is such a foundational uh, foundational reality in Uh, in scripture for our spiritual life. The Bible talks about the fact that there's basically two realities that describe us. Once we trust in Christ, which is very simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that scripture talks of these two different realities of our life in relation to God. The left side of the chart shows the eternal realities, and the right side, the temporal realities. Now, the each one of these I will describe with a circle. I've used a dark background and a white circle to emphasize the light idea, that we are children of light and we're to walk in in the light. So the white emphasizes that role of and that place that light is used in, in describing our Christian life. This left circle represents this phrase in Christ. It is also described by a term that theologians use called positional truth. Now, that's one of those abstract phrases that a lot of people have to stop and go, wait a minute, what does that mean? Positional truth is simply the truth that Scripture teaches regarding our position in Christ, that at the instant that we put our faith in Christ... The Bible teaches that God, the Holy Spirit, is used by Jesus to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. And by doing so, we are so closely identified and united to Jesus that we are uh, said to be in him. And that's this phrase that we find in Scripture again and again, especially in the Apostle Paul. And this is the essence of our position. We're identified with Christ by the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, on the right side of the chart, we've got another circle. This circle describes our day-to-day experience, the temporal reality, our day-to-day dependence upon, upon God. And this is expressed by a number of different phrases in Scripture. This is where we walk in the light, or uh, if we're disobedient and sinful, we're outside and we're walking in darkness. And this is often described by the phrase being filled by the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that side of the chart this morning. So we are, uh, at the instant we're saved, we are in Christ Christ, that is a legal, eternal position that we have that never changes. But we, And we begin by being filled with, by the Spirit, but as soon as we sin, we're out of fellowship and in carnality. We can either walk by the Spirit or walk by the sin nature or walk by the flesh, as Scripture says. Now, I just want to talk about this left side this morning. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does the Scripture teach about this? Well, we see that this is a crucial term and concept in Scripture because the Apostle Paul uses the phrase 164 times, and it's somewhat unique to Paul. In the Gospels, many times Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, talks about being in me, abiding in me. And the way John uses the term, the way Jesus is using the term in those contexts isn't the same as the way Paul uses it in Christ that's a relational term that has to, abiding in Christ when he says abide in me that was not just a legal positional reality that was had to do with experience so that uh, John uses that in a different way but for Paul this is the key term for describing the believer's position uh, in uh, in Christ now what's interesting about this is this was one of the key elements that was, or key theological terms or ideas that was honed and refined by a man who lived at the, near the beginning and middle of the 19th century by the name of John Nelson Darby. Darby, some of you know who he was, Darby was originally ordained as an Anglican. And he went to Ireland, and he had a uh, ministry in Ireland where he was quite impoverished and became quite ill. And during the time that he was, was ill and convalescing, it forced him to spend a lot of time in the Word. And when he did that, he saw a lot of things that um, the solutions to a lot of things that had been troubling him. One of the things that he came to understand is what we usually think of when we think of Darby, and that is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism comes, or the word dispensation is used to translate the Greek word uh, oikonomia, which has to do with the way God administers his plan for mankind as we go through history, and that history is divided up into various epochs or ages that are administered by God in slightly uh, different ways so that just for example in the Old Testament uh, you would bring uh, literal animal sacrifices to the temple in order to worship God but once Jesus Christ came there are no more animal sacrifices we don't worship at the temple as Jesus said to the uh, Samaritan woman uh, in John chapter 4, there would come a time when we would not worship at a temple, but that we would worship, all would worship by means of the Spirit and by, by means of truth. So that shows that there is a distinction between what took place in the Old Testament and what is taking place now. God is administering His plan in different ways. So while Darby is well known for his emphasis on, on dispensationalism and his systematic organization of those those doctrines is not that those ideas were new with him they had been around uh, for for centuries he did not invent the idea of dispensations but what he did was to organize and systematize an understanding of dispensations that clarified things in ways that had never before been clarified Well, he did the same thing for this whole idea of positional truth and being in Christ. And so an emphasis on positional truth and the riches that we have in Christ became characteristic of the Plymouth Brethren movement, which was the uh, denomination that uh, Darby was uh, one of many who helped uh, uh, organize and lead during the 19th century. And so with the that focus on doctrines related to positional truth, there, there's speci- uh, especially an emphasis on the study of books like Ephesians and Colossians because both of these epistles, which were written uh, very close to one another, also emphasize uh, this doctrine, the, the riches that the believer has in Christ and how we are to live on the basis of those riches, come to understand that we have... Uh, We have a spiritual bank account that has unlimited funds in it, and most of us are living like we're bouncing checks. And we need to learn to live in light of the fact that we have an unlimited spiritual bank account and not one that only has two or three pennies in it. Uh, So Darby was instrumental in uh, bringing this to the foreground and emphasizing uh, emphasizing this now in dispensationalism, we recognize that there are there are certain things that are common and unchanging throughout all the dispensations, for example, uh, we believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, today we know who Jesus Christ is, but in the Old Testament they did not know who Jesus Christ or who Christ was. Christos, meaning the Messiah. the Old Testament, they didn't know who the Messiah would be. So in the Old Testament, there was simply faith in the promise of God that he would provide a solution to sin and that this would come through the Messiah. But once Jesus came and presented himself as the Messiah of Israel and had all of the credentials that demonstrated that he was the uh, fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, that he was the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, then once he went to the cross as the ultimate fulfillment of what all those sacrifices uh, pictured in the Old Testament, then... After the cross, we no longer uh, we no longer have animal sacrifices, and we no, long, no longer look forward to God's provision of a Savior. We look back to a provision of the Savior who is specifically Jesus of Nazareth. And so we see that there is one thing that continues throughout all the ages: that salvation is by faith alone in the Messiah, anticipated in the Old Testament, fulfilled. Uh, in, in the New Testament, by the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, their emphasis was on Israel, the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God worked in and through the nation of Israel and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet in the New Testament, God has simply temporarily set aside Israel During this time, and he focuses on a new people of God called the church, comprised of Jew and Gentile. And so the church is comprised of all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. The church, universal, is also referred to as the body of Christ, and it is composed of all of those since the day of Pentecost in AD 33, all of those who have put their faith alone. Uh, in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, only a few in Israel ever had any kind of relationship with God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was, uh, in, in, the Holy Spirit endued only a few. Uh, people in Israel, those who are associated with the leadership of Israel. For example, the Holy Spirit gave skill or wisdom to uh, Bezalel and Aholiab as they were building and constructing the furniture for the tabernacle. Uh, the Holy Spirit w- worked in the life of Saul and David as kings of Israel, but we're not told that any other kings of Israel had that kind of relationship with God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked in the prophets and the writers of Scripture, uh, which included some priests, but only for the purpose of revealing Scripture. The Holy Spirit empowered some of the judges and gave them the skill they needed to defeat the enemies of Israel. But at no time did God the Holy Spirit empower individual believers of any kind in relation to their spiritual life or spiritual growth. It was always task or function, or responsibility related in terms of the leadership of the nation Israel. But in the New Testament, this completely changed. Every single believer, every one of us, from the moment we trusted in Christ, have a unique relationship with God the Holy Spirit that is for only church-age believers. Tribulation saints will not have any ministry of God the Holy Spirit uh, in this sense. And then in the millennial kingdom, it's enhanced for Israel in other ways in relation to the new covenant as we've, as we've studied elsewhere. But in the church age, this age in which we live, one of the unique things that, that we have in relation to the Holy Spirit is what I described a minute ago, which is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit that God, God the Son uses God the Holy Spirit to uh, cleanse the believer positionally at salvation, which is accomplished by identifying us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, and then we are united with Jesus Christ in a unique way that happens uh, at no other time in, in history. So Paul emphasizes this, that 164 times, the phrase in Christ emphasizes our new identity. We're placed into Christ. It's related to our adoption within the royal family of God. We have a new identity, a new position. We have a new inheritance. Paul says that we are heirs of God. And so we have this new relationship because we are united with Christ. There is a unity that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ that is not something we experience, but is nevertheless more real than anything that we can ever experience. And it is unique to this church age. And so we are to live in light of this. And we see this emphasis that Paul has here in... In Colossians, for example, in Colossians 2 3, in speaking of Jesus as he concluded the introduction, he said, It is in him, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Getting knowledge and wisdom in Greco-Roman culture at that time had something to do with the mystery religions and having some sort of mystical experience with the deity and some sort of ecstatic, uh, experience. They would go up into groves and they would, uh, dance or pray or get drunk or various, depending on the mystery religion, there were various different ways in which they would have this special spiritual encounter with the God, whether it was uh, Dionysius or whether it was the uh, Sibylle Attis cult or whether it had to do with the uh, illusion mysteries. It was always this kind of secret, special knowledge that uh, the initiate had to go through and, and, and sort of jump through the spiritual hoop or have this special experience uh, before they could advance to the secrets of knowledge and wisdom. But what Paul says here is that in Christ we have access to all knowledge and wisdom because it is in his thinking, uh, it's his thinking that is the origin of all knowledge and wisdom. And only by being in relation to him do we have access to r- real wisdom and knowledge. In the next verse, he says that we are rooted and built up in him. This is foundational to our being able to walk in Christ. We walk in him. We are rooted and built up in him. In Colossians 2.10, Paul says we are complete in him. Nothing was left out. Christ is sufficient. We've been given everything. In Ephesians 1 3, Paul says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Uh, Peter in 2 Peter 1 3 says that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Nothing's been left out. It's complete. We don't have to have an additional experience. There's no second work of grace. There's no getting some sort of secret to the Christian life that now we, we have more than we had before. It's all given to to the believer uh, at the instant of our salvation, by virtue of the fact that we are in him, and then in verse eleven Paul says it's in him that we are circumcised with a spiritual circumcision, and this the 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 spiritual significance is of this is that it, it signifies the removal of the flesh, the removal of the sin nature, the positional absolute cleansing that we have in Christ, so that all sin has been taken care of. Sin isn't the issue anymore. The issue is growing in Jesus Christ. Now, we still sin, and the solution to temporal cleansing or ongoing cleansing is 1 John 1, 9, confessing our sin, but it's grounded on this positional reality that we have been legally declared righteous and just because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, so all of this is part of who we are, what we have in Jesus Christ. Now verse seven is going to begin to explain how we can walk in Christ. There are so many different metaphors or ways in which the walking metaphor is used walking in truth, uh, walking by means of love, walking by means of God, the Holy Spirit uh, that that and each of those passages gives us uh, more information and other ways in which uh, the apostles describe how we do this. But right here we're focusing on what the apostle Paul says. In verse 7 he says, "...we are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving." Now, as you read that in the English, whatever the English translation is, unless it's a little more amplified or expanded one, these words that I have underlined here, rooted, built up, established, and uh, abounding, are words that are a little bit nebulous or ambiguous. They're translated that way intentionally because there's a certain amount of ambiguity in any language, that is left up to the hearer, the listener, the reader to understand. And we, we all do that naturally. In English, if English is your first language, then you learn to do that and we pick up on these shades of meaning, these nuances. Typically, whenever we're having a conversation with anybody or reading a book, it doesn't really need to be broken out, broken down and spelled out to you. But if you're reading and working with a foreign language, sometimes we don't always pick up on these kinds of nuances because they're not necessarily based on pure objective uh, rules of grammar. But they 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 have to do with just how we understand the conversation, the topic, all of the uh, body language, things that go into communication. And one of these areas where we do have a certain amount of ambiguity in Greek has to do with participles. And a participle usually ends with ing. And we have one participle translated with ing here, and that's abounding. Uh, abounding in, in it with thanksgiving, but all four of these words are participles. Now, a participle can be used one of two ways. I didn't know you were going to get a grammar lesson this morning, but this is one of those places where grammar really just opens it up like a Christmas present. It just helps us understand what Paul is saying here, and you just can't get it from the English at all. Um, in fact, the English kind of messes things up because if you look at that Uh, first line, rooted, built up, and established are all translated in English by past tense verbs that look like they're all finite verbs, and they're not. There's only one finite verb in the sentence, and that's at the end of verse verse 6, and that's walk in him. It's a present imperative. That is a command to walk in him. These four participles are all say something. They're called adverbial participles because they modify the main verb. They tell us something about how to walk in Christ. And we, so therefore, we have to properly understand these participles, and sometimes we get frustrated, and we think, well, why didn't the translators do it? Well, because a lot of different things go into it, and as Bob Thomas points out in his book on evangelical hermeneutics, the role of the translator in a published translation is to leave things like this at the same level of ambiguity that they have in the original language so that the pastor is the one who is interpreting the text to his congregation can help the congregation understand how this should be, uh, how, how you should interpret this and what it means. So this first participle here is the Greek verb, rizao which means simply to root something so if you're planting if you're familiar with gardening whether it's vegetable or flower gardening you know the importance of something being rooted that's the foundation that once something is rooted it's it's given it's come to life it is that that happens one time in the in the life of a plant and so in this sentence here this verb is expressed in a perfect tense participle. That's what's important in understanding the uh, syntax here, that it's a a perfect middle participle. The important part is that it's a perfect tense. And perfect tense always describes a completed action, something that's happened in the past and it's over with. And when a perfect tense is used, you're either emphasizing the fact that it was done in the past and the actions completed with ongoing results, or you're emphasizing the present results of a past completed action. And that's what we have here is Paul is really emphasizing the present results. We are rooted if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're rooted. It happened when you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You got rooted spiritually. He uses again and again through Colossians this this uh, metaphor from from uh, gardening or from agriculture. We got rooted one time. You got rooted when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You got rooted when you are identified with Christ. And placed in union with Him. It is a one-time thing. It's completed. And Paul is talking about realizing now what we have and what took place at salvation that we were, that we were rooted in Him. And that can't change. It can't be destroyed. Nothing, nothing changes that. So perfect tense emphasizes completed past action with an emphasis on these present results that we are Rooted because this happened in the past. And then the next participle though, uh, changes a little bit, and we get a hint of this. Ephesians three seventeen uses that root, I mean that that root word again that and in that passage, Paul says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you and notice the translators, the new, new king James, continue to translate it as a, sort of a present tense idea, being rooted and grounded. Both of those words, rooted and grounded in Ephesians 3:17 are perfect tense participles, and they 're synonymous, being rooted, and, and the word, therefore, being grounded is from a, from a verb that means to lay a foundation. So it uses the, the word "grounding" shifts from an agricultural metaphor to a construction metaphor. How many times do you lay a foundation when you 're building a, a an edifice, a building, a house, whatever it is? You lay the foundation one time so being rooted, laying a foundation are two different ways of talking about the same thing a one time event that happened that happened in christ so that's over with. Now we have to live on the basis of that, and so we say that uh, Paul. The way I would translate this at the bottom of that chart would be that Paul is saying, "Walk in Christ because you have already been rooted," or "Walk in Christ because you are now rooted." It, it al- al- almost brings in this causal idea. We can walk in Christ. For this reason, we've already been rooted. But then the next word built up, which shifts from an agricultural to a um, construction metaphor, is the Greek word ep-oikadameo. is a word that indicates construction. Sometimes it's translated edification, and it has to do with building or building something up. Building. A, if you're building a skyscraper, you're building it one floor at a time. If you're building a house, you start with the first floor, go to the second floor, and then maybe a third floor, the roof. Uh, you start at the base and you move up, and it has to do with, the, with the, when applied to the to life, to the Christian life, that we are building something spiritually in our soul one thing at a time. And, and the end result is that we're, we're, and it, it's a metaphor for the fact that we're growing up or maturing as a, as a, as a Christian. So, but notice the grammar here. This is a present participle. Now, an, a perfect participle emphasizes completed action, but a present participle emphasizes action that's taking place at the same time as the main verb at the same time as the main verb. It's called contemporaneous action. So if walk is present tense, then you walk by being built up. Walking and building up happen together at the same time. It's based on a fact that there's a prior foundation laid that's said here to be rooted because you have already been rooted and are now being built up, being edified, being uh, matured would be another way of looking at being having been rooted and now being built up in him. And then the next word, and being established, this also is a present middle participle. So it happens at the same time as the main verb to walk. Now, these, uh, these participles, uh, built up, established, and abounding, I think are are participles of means. In other words, this tells us how we're to walk. We walk by being built up. We walk by being established or confirmed in something. Uh, this word be, uh, "bebayao" has to do with a, a confirmation or establishing something on solid ground. Once again, it takes us back to that that metaphor of construction, where you lay a sound foundation. Which is Jesus Christ when we trust in Him and then we build on that with our spiritual life. And it is done one floor at a time, uh, in using a construction metaphor. It's done bit by bit, piece by piece as we, as we grow and mature day by day. And it is uh, something that is the more we do it, the more, uh, stable we become on that foundation. And then going along with this is the third, or or excuse me, the fourth participle here, the third present tense participle, abounding in gratitude or overflowing in gratitude. So that something that goes along with spiritual growth is an increase in our appreciation for all that God has done for us and our gratitude. How important it is to express that thankfulness, to have a mentality of gratitude to God, being thankful for all that he has has done for us, all that he's given us, all that he's provided for us, the way in which we can trust in him and rely upon him no matter what the circumstances uh, might be. So we walk on the foundation that is laid in Christ because we're rooted in that spiritual life, we're rooted in Christ, and then we build, we mature, we grow, and this is expressed through the, uh, through the participles of, of, uh, having been, uh, built up in Him, uh, being established or grounded, uh, on something solid, confirmed on something solid, and notice that is in the faith. It is not, faith here is not talking about the act of believing, when it's used in this way, it's talking about what we believe. We're grounded in the faith, which is a term that expresses all that we should believe as Christians. It is the faith in Christ. It is the sum total of what the Bible teaches about God and who he is and who Jesus Christ is. And so we don't just learn that in the simple message of the gospel. This is an ongoing process. We never get to the time in this life when we know everything there is to know about the faith. You can't get there. No matter how much you study the Word between now and the time you die, when you die and you're face-to-face with the Lord, you're suddenly going to realize that we probably only scratched the surface of less than 1% of all we could have learned about the faith. So that's no excuse for thinking, well, somehow I've arrived and I can make it for the rest of my life. I know enough about the Word. So we're to walk in Him. We're built up in Him. We are established or grounded in the faith. We constantly have to learn and grow uh, in terms of what the Bible teaches. Uh, Establish in the faith as you have been taught, And then the result then, or what goes along with this, is abounding in it with thanksgiving or with gratitude, being thankful for all that God has provided for us. Now, as we wrap up, I want to close with the question I started with a couple of weeks ago, and that is something for you to think about. How does your spiritual life grow? How is your spiritual life growing? How does it progress? How are you in terms of being built up? How are you in terms of being uh, confirmed or established in the faith? How much have you learned about the faith? How well do you know the Scriptures? Uh, How well do you understand all of the doctrines that are taught in the Scriptures? Uh, Just as a starting point, first we have to, in, in any endeavor in life, the first thing we have to do is we have to learn a lot of facts, Anybody here memorize all the Bible yet? See, you don't know enough facts. Neither do I. So we've got a lot of facts to learn just knowing the Scripture. Then we have to understand what all of that means in terms of doctrine and teaching. We're a long way from that. Then we have to uh, apply what we have learned that we should apply. And we're a long way from that. And, and so none of us can has any excuse... Uh, to say that well I'm just too busy in life to put a focus on my spiritual life. What the scripture says is because you are who you are as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because you and I are in Christ we're members of the family of God, we're members of the body of Christ, we're united with him in a way in ways that go beyond anything we can possibly imagine. The priority for us is to maximize the potential that we have because of this unity in Christ. So asking the question, how is your spiritual life growing? I had two secondary questions. One is, is the growth of your spiritual life a priority? Now, I know that many of us are very busy. We have, you have jobs, you have careers, you have family But that doesn't mean that you don't have time for your spiritual life. If you don't have time for your spiritual life, you really don't have time for anything else. Because when it's all said and done, that is what informs and strengthens everything else in life. But what does a strong spiritual life look like? What should that look like? What are the characteristics of a strong spiritual life? Well, one characteristic is your prayer life. Because your prayer life is your communication with God. And in that, there are many different ways in which we communicate to God. There's prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of, of trusting in Him where we're claiming promises on a day-to-day basis, prayers for others, prayers for ourself. But But prayer should be a consistent reality in our life. Second thing should be Bible reading. I'm amazed at how biblically illiterate Christians who think they are biblically literate actually are. We come to go to a Bible church. That means the Bible is supposed to be important to us. And yet how many times in the last five years have you read through the Bible completely? Have you read through the New Testament completely? Have you even read through the book of Psalms in, in, in the last five years? We should be reading the Scripture on a regular basis. If you just read three chapters a day, three or four chapters a day, you're going to read through the entire Bible in uh, a little more than a year. We should be reading our Bible just to know the basic data, who's who, what's what, and where's where. Uh, Then we have memorization, at least memorize half a dozen good uh, promises of God so that you can claim them when you're going through difficult times, but we should be memorizing Scripture. And for one thing, when you memorize Scripture and you say it over and over again in your head and you think through what those words mean and you, you focus on the, the mechanics of memorization, phrase by phrase, clause by clause, all of a sudden the impact of what is being said, what is being promised becomes more real to you and this then this then becomes a promise uh that is more significant for you and one that you can claim on a, you know more readily and then of course the priority of bible study not just coming to bible class but taking notes then going home the next night reading them maybe going back and saying, I'm not sure I quite understood that I need to listen to that again uh reading the verses uh the corollary verses that I put up uh on the screen looking at them thinking about them reading the context of those verses all of that is part of the foundation for our spiritual life the spiritual life is built on knowledge of the word it isn't just knowledge of the word but you can't get to the application if you don't first know it and the second question first was is the growth of your spiritual life a priority and the second question is what's your gratitude barometer What's your gratitude barometer? How really thankful are you to God for everything in your life on a day-to-day basis? Are we truly grateful to God? Our gratitude barometer tells us how grace-oriented we are. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and that word grace is etymologically related to gratitude. Gratitude is the response to grace. And if we're not grateful to what God has graciously given us, and what easily slips in is the idea, well, God's given it to me, but I'm pretty deserving. You know, after all, it's me. You know, we think that way. It slips in, just subtle ways. We don't want to admit it, but we do, that that God's really gracious to me because, after all, it's me. Right? We need to be grateful truly grateful, not just for what we think are the good things, but often for the tough things that we face in life because that just gives us an opportunity to trust in Him. So this is what Paul is saying, is that we are to walk in Him, and this is characterized by the fact that we've already been rooted in Christ, and now we are being built up in Him. We're being established or grounded in the faith and we are abounding with thanksgiving, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for the clarity of Scripture in teaching us about how we even have a spiritual life, which comes only by trusting in Christ as Savior. At that instant we are born again, we're a spiritual infant, and like any infant, we have to grow. Peter says that we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word, that we may grow by it. It is through your word that we grow, and we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with a, uh, the fact that we need to spend a lot more time focusing on our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, and we need to make that a priority because that is the only thing we take with us when we die. Father, we pray, too, for anyone here this morning who may be unsure of their uh, eternal destiny or unsure of their salvation and we just want to remind them that salvation is a free gift, that it's uh, accepted simply by trusting or believing in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who died for our sins and paid the penalty that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that, you, that as God the Holy Spirit brings these things to our minds in the coming days, that you would use this to just push us and motivate us along the path to spiritual growth. We pray in Christ's name, amen.